This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, sorry, I've been traveling a little bit, everybody, and I had a couple of mix-ups. So if you if you caught yesterday's show, I actually had to do a repeat. I apologize for that. But welcome, welcome. Uh, great to be uh, together, and we have a lot to cover today. Uh, a couple of great guests coming up, and uh, I'll fill you in on my trip to Texas earlier in the week, which will be interesting, and headed, of course, into a great weekend. I hope people are, are ready to celebrate Father's Day. Father's Day, what a great thing. I'll talk about at the end of the program, Father's Day, and give a little tribute uh, to my own father and to others. So we'll get to that um, in a moment. So let's talk about what you now know, what you now know. I've been using that phrase with people, what you now know. When I finish this, you will know uh, everything you need to know about something very, very important. Are you ready for this? You know, there's lots of coverage of the European, uh, what I call the European debacle. Uh, Joe Biden, I don't think he accomplished anything and he looked kind of weak and silly, uh, but what he maybe what he did accomplish maybe a way to talk about what he did accomplish was he pivoted america back to the same old same old that you know you have a guy over there who's acting like it's about 1978 he's talking about iran that way he's talking about the russians that way he's not he's a bit feckless he's kind of stumbling around you remember joe biden was already in the senate in the 1970s so he would have witnessed jimmy carter firsthand but that's what it looked like it just didn't look strong right it looked kind of it looked kind of weak and sort of uh but anyway he did turn everybody back they started worrying about the old the same old same old the oldies now i guess you can say that the that uh, Jimmy Carter didn't worry quite as much about climate change by name, but he certainly was, uh, he, we ended up with problems with gas prices and everything else. But as to the rest of it, you know, this Russia, Russia, Russia thing, it's just insane. It's insane. And here's why. Because even if you think that Russia is a rival, that's fine. And even if you think Russia is, uh, I don't know what, you know, trying to compete with the world and they, they, they tell stories and political about spies and all, the real threat is the communist regime in China. And everything about the way somebody like Joe Biden is referring right now to the Russians is how he should be talking about the Chinese. And so one of the news stories, news stories that broke, and we'll see if it gets more coverage. It hasn't received much coverage yet. It did just break, uh, you know, late Thursday night, the story broke. And the story is about a Chinese defector, a Chinese defector who... Um, Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm just kind of looking at texts that people sent me earlier from the program. You know, it is true. This is one of the things that's um, happening. We're spending a time talking about Juneteenth and whether Juneteenth should be a holiday and how made up it is and all that. The, um, the, the reality is the real threat is communist China. And so what, what we saw... Uh, over these in about late Thursday night, the story broke. And it's again, it's not getting much coverage. I'm looking right now on social media to see. And you know what? It's um, it's this that there is a defector, a defector to America from China and a high level top counterintelligence official. And this was confirmed. And we now know Chinese language, anti-communist media and Twitter are abuzz. It says there were rumors. The rumors are now confirmed. Dong Jingwei defected in mid-February, flying from Hong Kong to the United States with his daughter. Longtime official in the Ministry of State Security also, uh, and, and he was a counterintelligence guy, spy catching. <clears throat> the point here is, highest level defector 
from China to America. And my point here is to try to change the mindset of the people of this country to understand there is one global world threat to the United States, and it's the communist Chinese regime. And they are doing everything they possibly can to to try to damage America. They have spies here. They have operations here. They have influence efforts here. You know, I've I've objected to TikTok being uh, used in America, not only because they steal the data, but frankly, that's secondary in my mind. The bigger thing is the influence they have over millions and millions of people because they can they can spike you know, they can upspike the use of the views of videos that are detrimental to America. And if you don't think, as someone said, one of the commentators said that the Chinese regime isn't looking and going, look at Americans fighting over race. Look at Americans fighting each other over race. That's good for them, right? If you're the Chinese regime and you can continue to upspike the stories about uh, race and the stories about hate and the stories about America failing, you certainly don't want a series of stories about American exceptionalism, Americans uh, fighting our way through the, uh, the, uh, the great uh, COVID breakdown. You don't want stories about that. You want all the opposite. And and the, and the point here is the communist regime now this 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 um, uh, defector has again I, we will get more of the details as it comes out. I hope. Uh, but the details we know so far. Oh, and one other interesting, <laughs> interesting moment. Uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is over in Alaska a month or two ago, meeting with his uh, Chinese co- counterparts, and they asked for this guy by name. He didn't know anything about it. And as I said earlier on my live stream, you can go uh, watch my live stream over on social media. I said, if I'm the Secretary of State and I'm going to meet the Russians, excuse me, the Chinese, and they're th- th- we've got this guy, somebody should have briefed him. Somebody should have briefed him so that he could say, oh, yeah, you know, we know I know about that. He looked like a, he looked like he didn't know. And uh, I'm sure he just faked it and just pretended whatever. I'm not. But here's the here's the deal. What we're hearing this this uh, defector has is information on how they managed Wuhan, what the expectations were, what was happening. Lots of details, lots of details of what's going on. This is a big deal. Now we have uh, we have professors, Chinese national professors who've been arrested for stealing trade secrets. We know the Chinese government steals lots of uh, intellectual property. We have, in other words, we have a track record here. And instead of uh, having ourselves go into a faux, a fake Cold War, the faux Cold War with with Russia, we ought to try to get real about what's happening in this country because there are millions of Americans, in my in my opinion, there are millions of Americans who are compromised. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that they're signed on to the, the Chinese communist uh, regime? Are they communist party members? I'm not sure it means that. But it does mean that they're willing to aid the worldview that China is not a threat. And again, I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying that that's a crime. I'm not sure that being complicit in that is a crime, but it's not good policy. It's not good national policy. It's not something you should want. And let me be clear. I do think there are some spies. I think with as much money as the Chinese regime has and as much uh, tension as they like to cause, I would be stunned if they're not over here spending money paying people, especially during the Trump years, to be spies. Why not? Why not? Why wouldn't it happen? What, give me the reason why in 2021 there would not be people who were susceptible to be spies for the Chinese communists just like there were in the 1950s and 60s and it was revealed completely true confirmed up and down 
It has to be it has to be happening. And the question is, the FBI and the and the and the and the White House has announced uh, not just the FBI, the Department of Justice and the White House has announced a hundred million dollars to for the ultimate domestic violence, the domestic threat, which is violence uh, against uh, each other based on race, particularly white supremacy. Really, really, in terms of our national security. Is it possible that the fentanyl pouring in our country, the possibility of spies in our government, in our businesses, we have millions of American citizens now in the last 25 years, 30 years, Chinese nationals have become American citizens, a lot of times with birthright citizenship. And we're supposed to think, oh, yeah, this is perfect. This is working out great. It's a problem. It's a problem. I'm hoping that this defector will become a pivot for the American people to understand better exactly what's happening, that China is cheating and that they are aimed at us and that we are being infiltrated and it's not a minor thing. And we can stop doing the ho- the ho- cold, the faux cold war, the faux cold war against Russia. That's gone. We can still be rivals. We can still have issues. I don't mind any of that. But what I know is a threat, a big time threat is what's happening in this country based on what the Chinese are doing. And the idea that we're not getting on top of it is insane. Insane. All right, everybody, we'll take a break. We've got a couple of great guests, Hans von Spakowski, talking about elections. We'll also talk with Dr. Patrick Moore about the uh, fake invisible catastrophes and threats of doom. I've got his book right in front of me, and uh, we will talk to them in a moment. Take a quick break and be right back. Please tune in. By the way, I'll do my Father's Day message at the end of the program, and uh, you'll like it. You know, I promise. Take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is our old friend Hans von Spakovsky. And I have to say, I don't want to drive you away from listening to this show. But if you go over to phyllisschlafly.com, I think by now we should have the clip from him at our St. Louis, excuse me, our Phyllis Schlafly Collegians Summit. And it was excellent. He was in our uh, our office. We had a great conversation. So thanks for that, Hans. And it was great to, a great visit, a little bit longer, maybe 20, 25 minutes. And so we have a little less time. So Hans von Spakovsky, of course, is the head of the Ed Meese Judicial Center and also is a uh, constitutional scholar over at the Heritage Foundation. And his background, of course, was on the FEC, sat on the election, Federal Election Commission, knows election law, and is very helpful in this time. So welcome back, Hans. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. It was nice to see you in person. Yeah, that was fun. It was really fun. And I have to tell you that I encouraged you. You you were telling some stories about your childhood and your upbringing and your parents. It was uh, fascinating for so many people that know of you and read your stuff. It was a great context. So I, I again, encourage you to, to write your memoir. But so, Hans, can I ask you, how do you assess a lot of people? A lot of good people, not not put aside any fringe people, a lot of good people wonder about the election in 2020 and they're hearing about like, oh, there's an audit and there's lawsuits. And, you know, part of the distraction in my mind is when people say, oh, they they might change presidents. I don't see how that could ever happen. Uh, But what can happen is that is the best we can hope for sort of getting to the bottom of what the problems were to to make it so that we know what to change. Is that is that what because part of me says the people that are trying so hard to find out what happened, they're getting more and more sort of marginalized. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And no, look, the the 2020 election, it's over. Okay, no matter what's found in any of these audits, not going to change the outcome of the election because states have very short deadlines to file an election contest. You know, losing candidate, 
uh, uh, has to be in court by a certain time. That we're way past that. The only thing the audit audits will find was will be were there problems. You know, what, what, were there errors? Were there mistakes? Was there intentional wrongdoing? And if they find that, uh, two things can happen. If there were errors and mistakes, they can try to remedy those so they don't happen in future elections. And if there was intentional misbehavior, then people right. could potentially be criminally prosecuted if there were violations of state or federal election laws. Right, right, right. Exactly. So again, and 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 uh, and and really, one of the reasons, if you're so, I, I read somewhere recently, and pardon me, we're again we're talking with Hans von Spakovsky, and if you go over to Heritage Foundation's website, he's also a senior legal fellow, manages the Election Law Reform Initiative. So there's all of the country when they need to figure out how these laws fit together, they call Hans and his team. Um, but after after 2016, for reasons that have to do with, in my opinion, Hillary and the gang being crazy and call, yelling Russia, 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 by the time you get a year after the 2016 election, you have about 75% of Democrats who don't think the election was fair. They think it was, you know, the 2016 election was hacked or whatever. By the time you get six months after the 2020 election, I'm one of them. You people think for whatever reason, I don't want to argue about the reason people think that election wasn't right. Now we have two groups of both parties who think, Hey, I don't have confidence in the election system. That's one of the problems, right? I mean, we have to have confidence in our system. Right. And therefore, you better do things that instill confidence, right? No, that's exactly right. And look, one of the reasons people don't have confidence, for example, the last year's election was because there was this huge increase in the use of absentee or mail-in ballots. And those, of course, are the ones most vulnerable to fraud. Um, the only way you potentially know if the voter actually filled them out is a signature comparison, which is a very inexact way of doing it and as you know in some places like uh pennsylvania they basically relax that standard and weren't even doing signature comparison so people are suspicious you know were there fraudulent ballot uh, cast we we don't really know yeah is again we're talking with hans von smakowski from over at the heritage foundation former fec member um so you've watched the ebb and flow of this you've watched um you know the after 2000 election there was a sort of the help america vote act was passed which was you know a, a lot of things you know elections what's your feel on the sort of the the pendulum of reform is it is there enough you know hr1 or s you know what is it senate resolution one also that looks like it's stalled the pelosi dream of federal takeover so but where is the real reform are we going to end up with 30 red that have some real reform and 20 states that are blue that don't do anything or stay the same is that possible yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, the, the blue states think everything's fine. And in fact, they are loosening uh, their laws even more, getting rid of any kind of security protocols. That's why New York and California, for example, you don't even need an ID to vote. Whereas other states like Georgia, Florida, Texas, um, Arizona are trying to uh, by the past election reforms intended to fix some of these vulnerabilities or like Texas are, are still working on it. Is, um, is, what, what would happen in a presidential election, because it would be a federal uh, sort of incident, if you had like 
New York, and you could say like New York passed so many laws that have no security. They really are a mess of it, and they and they send their electors like this. And 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 the Texas has a system that's more secure, and they send theirs to that. Is the is it really settled that you know any state can make a mess of it, or would there be a sort of equal protection kind of claim that would say, hey, you can't sort of muddle everything down by a total mess? Well, unfortunately, that's exactly the argument Texas made after uh, the 2020 election. Remember, Texas filed a lawsuit yeah, yeah. directly with the Supreme Court. And that's essentially the argument they made. They, they argued that the changes that were made in states like Pennsylvania um, basically uh, denied them equal protection, denied their voters in Texas uh, you, you know, a, a, a fair election, but the Supreme Court unfortunately tossed it out and said Texas didn't have any standing to assert claims like that. Right. Yeah. So I guess not. All right. Uh, we're talking with, again Hans von Spakovsky. Uh, Hans, another question on this: as as we watch uh, election reforms going forward, and they're trying to do things to to tighten up. Um, do you, when you look towards uh, 2020, again these things ebb and flow. It feels like in 20, excuse me, 2022, it feels like in 2020, the Democrats were so committed and the media was so into it that there were more uh, efforts, legal as well as maybe illegal, but the legal is the ones you can see. And even they bragged about it. The Democrats had a big article, I think, in Newsweek where they bragged about how they fortified the election and they did a lot of things that are legal and weren't or maybe weren't illegal then. Uh, maybe even like the Zuckerberg money that was spent, probably not illegal then, might be illegal by the next time. But again, you probably watch the ebb and flow of the willingness of each party to recognize the problems. And, and I may be too simplified or too simplistic. You know, did the Democrats have an army and the Republicans thought we've got this because they had succeeded in 16. And has that changed now? Uh, and do you see that on the ground? Uh, the Democrats did have an army, an army of lawyers uh, filing more lawsuits than they've ever been filed to change the election rules. Uh, they were opposed by uh, Republicans and some state AGs, but nowhere near with the resources uh, that the Democrats put into it. But what happened in that election has really spurred state legislators, like I said, in many states to finally address many of these problems. So that's that's one of the it's, uh, single good things that came out of last year's election. And I think I asked you the other night, but I want to ask you on the, on the radio show, too. Um, anybody ever talk about having like trying to really push for an election day? You know, last in this earlier this week, they made another federal holiday. Uh, you know, they voted, a, uh, excuse me, have another paid holiday for the federal government and, and whatever. Um, uh, would it work? Would it make a difference to say, hey, except for people who are in the military or absolutely, I don't know, in a, in a hospital, you know, some tighten up the absentee. We're going to have an election day where you have to be you're going to vote based on everything that you know on this Tuesday, could, is that ever, is there any appetite for that? I don't hear it ever, so it probably not. No, I don't hear it either. More and more states keep putting in early voting and stretching out the early voting, even though you and I both think that's not a good idea. Um, but that's the trend, and it doesn't seem to be reversing. Yeah, well, it is uh, no, it is a trend, and that's the worry, I think. All right, well, Hans von Spakovsky, he's over at the Heritage Foundation, senior legal fellow and manager of the Election Reform Initiative. Also, he's at the Ed Meese Center, the great Ed Meese Center for Legal uh, and Judicial Affairs. Thank you, uh, as always, Hans, for coming on, and uh, we will talk again soon, I feel sure. Sure thing. Thanks for having me.
All right. Hans von Spakowski, everybody. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. And as uh, my listeners know, I don't always, I don't too often have a return guest. And I'm really happy to welcome back Dr. Patrick Moore. Uh, Dr. Moore is uh, one of the founders of Greenpeace and has served in leadership uh, and positions with Greenpeace International, Greenpeace Canada, and for decades, all over 40 plus years, he's been involved in the environmental movement. Well, his book, which he was nice enough to, to, to send me, we talked about it a few weeks ago, and he sent it to me now, and I've read the whole thing. It's called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. And uh, so first of all, uh, Dr. Moore, you watch these guys and gals gather in Europe. They say all these doom and gloom things about, oh, climate change, we're going to spend gazillions of dollars. And are they just all talk as usual? Is it, uh, you know, what's the, what do you think of what you saw in Europe last, in the last few days? I say they're all talk as usual, Ed. They promised the developing countries, the poorer countries, $100 billion to help them fight climate change, which is a stupid thing in the first place because there's nothing to fight. The climate is just fine, and there is no climate emergency. But nevertheless, at Paris in 2015, I was there. They promised this money, and they haven't come up with it. And this is threatening the meeting in Scotland that's supposed to come up this fall, and I hope it falls apart. Because the Western countries, you can't believe a word they say, and you especially can't believe a word they say about this stupid climate emergency idea that they're planning to spend trillions of dollars on and end the use of fossil fuels, which is over 80% of our energy. Are they planning to starve half the population of the earth to death? Is that their great idea? I don't know. Right. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Patrick Moore again. His book is uh, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. And uh, so well, you travel the world. You've been in the world. I, I, when, when you hear like, OK, we're going to have a big climate change agreement. Everyone's going to spend money, change all that they're doing. When you go to the rest of the world, I mean, you must be able to look and see that, say, China's not going to do it anyway. They're going to they're putting a coal power plant online every, I don't know, six weeks or something. I mean, to the, the rest of the world, they just like laugh at us when we and then and and Biden and the media says, oh, this is serious. We're going to do something. The rest of the world's not going to participate. None of them are going to abide by the rules like the way we are. None of them are going to pay as much money as we are, right? And it's a mental illness of some kind. I've been to Asia and Africa and South America and all over the world. I haven't been to Antarctica. That's about it. There's not much <laughs> to do down there anyways except look at penguins. So, you know, they're just plain nuts because the rest of the world isn't going to do this. But what I do in my book is I prove that all the scare stories they're telling you today about polar bears going extinct and coral reefs dying off and walruses jumping to their death, suicide because of they're worried about the ice and all of these things and the climate change itself. It's all a bunch of hooey. And all these scare stories are based on things that are either invisible, like carbon dioxide and radiation from nuclear energy, and whatever unnamed thing is in GMOs that's supposed to be bad, which doesn't actually exist, because if it did, it would have a name. And then there's the <laughs> things that are, too, that are too remote, like polar bears and coral reefs. You can see a polar bear, you can see a coral reef, but how many people can go to the Arctic and count the polar bears? The polar bears are perfectly healthy. Their population has quadrupled since they stopped hunting them. 
1973 when the polar countries signed a treaty. So my book is going to help you to understand that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, full of plastic garbage, for example, is fake. It doesn't exist, even though CNN says it's twice as big as Texas and growing 16 times faster than we ever imagined. It's all a lie. All these scare stories are made up because the average person can't check for themselves to see if it's true. We're talking again with Dr. Patrick Moore, and the book is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Their Threats and, and Threats of Doom. Um, may, may I ask you, in, in the epilogue of the book, you reference the, uh, the COVID pandemic. And uh, without sort of delving into any one uh, aspect of it, there was a lot of uh, similar dynamic. We were told, trust the experts. They'll tell you what it means. You have to nod and salute. And it turns out a lot of the stuff they said they were guessing, right? And so it was a little bit like uh, when someone, you know, Al Gore says in 20 years, you, you, you know, the, flow, the, the, the waters will rise. Well, maybe he wasn't lying. Maybe he was just guessing, but he guessed wrong. And uh, so how, how did you watch the the great uh, COVID, I call it the great COVID breakdown, play out? And, and how do you think it sort of fits into uh, into your book and what, what you've seen over these years? Well, first off, the COVID virus is invisible. So therefore, you can make up stories about it that nobody can check. And they made up a lot of stories, all right. And the hmm. fact is, I hope the COVID pandemic, which was a serious thing, a lot more serious than the climate change thing, which is actually fake. COVID's not fake, but I hope the lying that occurred and the cover-ups that occurred will will show people what's happening at the high level now among the tech companies, the media, the governments, the scientists, the, the Greenpeace fundraisers who are just raking in money telling you they're going to help you and all they do is rake in money. They're not doing anything. And so please, everybody... Don't believe in the climate emergency because it isn't true. And if you want proof, my book is on Amazon. It has 850 reviews, 95% of which are positive, either five-star or four-star. Nearly all of them are actually five-star. So people are enjoying the book, and you will too. And so will your kids if they're in grade nine or above who have no trouble understanding it. Uh, again, the book's title is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, Dr. Patrick Moore. Um, may I ask you, Greenpeace and organizations like it, if you don't want to talk about Greenpeace specifically, but, uh, you know, uh, again, I, I think most Americans want to say, well, even if I don't agree, they have their uh, th their hearts in the right place. They may be misguided. Is that right? Or so, I mean, some of these are rackets. I mean, uh, is the, the industry around this scare is has gotten uh, uh, unbelievably large. We started, Ed, as a group of volunteers in a church basement in Vancouver, Canada. That was Greenpeace. And it grew mm -hmm. into a monster organization. I was with it for 15 years. Pretty soon we had a great big payroll we had to meet, and fundraising became more important than anything else. And then they started calling humans the enemies of the earth when actually we started out trying to save people from, from nuclear war. And so the whole thing right. changed and the left captured us and now they're peddling junk science just like so many of the others. What did you what would you say? What do you say to somebody who loves the environment? You know, the instinct like Americans love our natural uh, our national parks. And so they they are susceptible to the argument. Hey, look how beautiful nature is. Let's do something uh, really good. You know, what, what do you tell them to do? You obviously don't get sucked into the environmental movement. But what should they do? 
They should support groups like the Nature Conservancy who actually are buying property to protect it into the future instead of stealing it from people like the mainstream Greenpeace groups and those do. And the other thing I would say is study up on the greening of the earth. Go to Nassau, greening of the earth, and just greening of the earth in general. Our carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuel are totally positive, and they are, have resulted in a 30% increase in the growth of plants over the last 30 years, 10% per year. This is the big story about CO2 and fossil fuels. It is replacing and replenishing the CO2 that the plants took out of the environment and made coal and fossil fuel with, and it was stuck there for all these millions of years, and now we're putting it back where it came from. We're not putting something new into the atmosphere. We're replacing the fossil fuel that nature took out millions of years ago. One last question. I just have over a minute, though. Uh, you mentioned your, your original Greenpeace movement was worried about the threat of nuclear war, you know, and which was a, such a real, you know, real and present danger back, you know, 40, 45 years ago. Um, well, how do you react to nuclear power? A lot of the Biden, the Biden administration has actually said they're for nuclear power, too. I think uh, uh, Secretary Granholm said something like, you know, it's a major part of the solution going forward. The Trump administration was for it. Are you do you have a, 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 a thought on uh, nuclear power? power? 100% for nuclear power. There's 96 plants or 94 plants running in the U.S. every day. There's over 400 in the world. There should be 4,000. They're the safest huh. energy form. They could replace fossil fuels more than any other technology, and we should be 100% for them. Hmm. Very good. Well, it's, a, uh, you're, it's very helpful. Thank you. I'm glad to have you back on again. The book is uh, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Dr. Patrick Moore, as you mentioned, over at Amazon. I did notice that, getting lots of good reviews and getting lots of attention. Thanks for your time, sir, and we'll have you on again as, as uh, events warrant. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. Anytime. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. It's uh, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report. A daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Yesterday was Father's Day, and it's a good time to reflect on one of the biggest social and fiscal problems in America today. The sad plight of the some 20 million American children who are growing up without the care and authority of their own father in the home. There are many reasons for the missing fathers, and the least of all reasons is the so-called deadbeat dad. That's a nasty epithet coined by the feminists to show their disdain for men and their ideology that men are not necessary. Most of the children who lack their own fathers in the home have been made fatherless, either by their mothers who decided to have babies without getting married, or by a family court judge who ruled that after a divorce, child custody should be given to the mother while the father is labeled non-custodial and ordered out of the child's life. The constitutional right of the parents to control the care and upbringing of their own children should belong to both parents equally. But when primary or sole custody is given to the mother, the father becomes merely a sometime visitor in the child's life, often just two days a month. That's why it's called visitation. His only value is considered to be mailing a monthly check to the mother, which she can spend any way she wants. 
the father loses all parental authority and fades out of his own children's lives. There is beginning to be some recognition of the injustices of the family courts who have deliberately excluded fathers from living with or exercising parental authority over their own children. Several states, notably Florida and Minnesota, have passed reform bills that recognize that in the case of divorce, the parents should have joint legal custody unless evidence is presented in court that one parent is unfit. More states are moving in this direction, and that is a hopeful sign. Shared parenting would enable children to maintain strong ties to both parents. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. What's the best way to rekindle the spirit of Phyllis Schlafly and the grassroots movement she energized? In this digital age, patriots and pro-family Americans can find insight and inspiration on our website, phyllisschlafly.com. Then, share your own heart and mind on social media. So join us at phyllisschlafly.com and every weekday for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and it is uh, great to be wrapping up heading into the weekend, and it is a great weekend. Uh, Father's Day is an extraordinary celebration for me. I don't think I quite realized it when I was uh, not a father, and now that I am a father, you know, I talk often about my two daughters and two sons. It's uh, one of the greatest, well, it's probably the greatest, the greatest thing I've ever experienced in terms of with people is my wife and I being married as really awesome. But being a father is something that's just off the charts. And it's been in these years now, my daughter is in high school. My son's about to go into high school. Another son is a couple years younger. And then my youngest daughter, it's just amazingly fun. And um, what you realize as as a father is you just can't do it perfectly, uh, but you just got to keep doing it. And it is just great. And one of the things in the last few years, especially with the great uh, COVID breakdown, uh, the COVID breakdown, we had a lot more time with our kids. And we, some of the kids came to my the office with me a lot because there was nobody else here and they could be quiet. We could be here. And also now I drive my kids to school, especially my sons. And there's just lots of time with the kids. And I, I, I am aware of the importance of it. And I'm aware of the honor of it. And I was with over the uh, last couple of days, I mentioned I was in Texas, Rebecca Hagelin, who's a very talented conservative leader, uh, was there. And I don't know, a year ago, I was talking to her about my kids somehow. I don't know how it came up. I kind of have a sense, but I'll just leave it that we were talking. And she said, one of the things you don't realize is how powerful and important a father is in their daughter's lives, she was saying, and she was talking about that. It was very, it was very helpful conversation. But anyway, I just, I, I will be, um, I don't know, you know, Father's Day, it's, it's a, it's a sort of made up holiday, right? It's a, it's not, to, but it's wonderful. And so I don't, you will, will be celebrating. I think my son is going to a camp. I know he is on Sunday uh, afternoon. So we'll probably spend half the day uh, as a family, but it's just great. More, I came home from my trip. I was in Texas last night and got home at like seven thirty, and everybody had waited and we had a sit down family dinner just. Uh, you know, nice, nothing too special, just all sat together. It's just great to be a father. And I'm just privileged to uh, have the uh, chance to do it. And I'm grateful to God for the gift of fatherhood. And 
I'm therefore aware in a different way than I ever was of the role of my father in my life and uh, my grandfather, who was uh, my mom's father, uh, who died when I was 15 years old. And at the time, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me ever because he was really a spectacular guy. He had retired uh, a few years before, so he was very present in our lives. And it was unbelievably wonderful. He was an engineer and he was just a great man and uh, funny and interesting. And he was a big role, a big role in my life. And and then my father, just a, a, a monstrous, you know, I went to the same high school as my father did. I don't really remember why it happened. I think I wanted to go there. And, and my father went there to a little a high school, old boys high school, and uh, followed in his footsteps. And I just have this immense respect for my father and what he's done, what he did for me and my brother and my sister and my family and just who he is. And um, he's a lawyer too, very successful. And uh, But he's also just a, um, he's just a spectacular father. And uh, only in retrospect did I realize how well we, uh, how he, well he treated me and loved me to succeed. It was really something um, he gave me, he gave me confidence and he was never, um, never not proud of me. I, re- I don't know how to say that, but he was always proud of me. And it was, it, it didn't, you know, when I did something wrong, I got in trouble. Don't get me wrong. And that was not infrequent, but he was extraordinarily good at, I knew I was loved. Same thing with my mother. Both of them did this extraordinarily well. But as a as a father now, I am aware of that. And even when I'm frustrated with my kids and all. And my point here is, but, but back to my the very beginning is, nobody's perfect at this. One of the things when you start maybe your first time father is you're like, I can't I do this better? Why can't I get this better? Why can't I do this right? And even when you're older, you know, you, you, your kids are older, you're like, well, couldn't we have done this better or whatever? What you realize is it, it's, it, it's not, perf- there's no perfection. And this is sort of the insight of a lot of things, especially faith. And yet... It is perfection in a way. The presence is perfection. At least for me, I didn't have to have an absence. I was. I remember when my one of my friends from growing up, his father passed away, and I remember just being uh, stunned that that could happen and worrying about that for a long time. Uh, that my father would not live, uh, you know, as long as I wanted, and he did. He is still alive. So it was. It's a great gift. He's a great. Um, he's a great father, and um, I'm aware, for, especially as I'm, I'm a dad to my kids, of how uh, spectacular that is. And how grateful I should be. So, and and the same thing with my gra- my um, grandfather. And another one is my father-in-law. I married my wife, which has been the best thing ever for me. But she also has this incredible dad, and he's been a, a part of our family and especially life as we've had kids. A couple of times when we were living in St. Louis, he they, he and my mother-in-law stayed with us for months on end. And he's just a, another spectacular uh, person and a and a great father uh, to us and to our family. A grandfather, just amazing. So uh, and other things. So I hope that it, it, you know. And again, back to my point at the very beginning. I'll say it again. A lot of people I talk to them and they they remember all the shortcomings of their father. And and it, it's hard, right? I'm sure people that that didn't live up to what they wanted. For me, I've been blessed, uh, but. My point is, every father feels like they didn't get everything right. At least I think that's right. And the gift is and the challenge is to accept uh, your shortcomings and realize still the gift that you've been able to give by being a father and redouble the effort. And over the last, this year in the Catholic Church, this year is a year for Joseph. It's uh, focused on Joseph, who in the tr- in the tradition of the church has had a, a, a massive role as some as a role model for 
people, for men in general, people in general and men specifically. And so this whole year, there's been lots of teachings. And I was doing a Bible study on Joseph and the role he played. You know, for the first 30 years of Christ's life, we don't know much about it. But we know he lived with his father, Joseph, his stepfather, Joseph, and his mother. And he was a carpenter. So the guy who played the biggest role in preparing the human role, preparing, you know, the, the day to day, how you're going to be was Joseph in the life of Christ. It went on to serve his ministry you know, for those years that we know about in Scripture. So and, and the devotion to Joseph's life and his witness is really something to behold. And I encourage you, there's another you know six months left in this year, really a, um, a, a wonderful uh, model uh, and uh, interesting to study. So on this weekend, as you head into the weekend, happy Father's Day to my dad. Happy Father's Day to my father-in-law. It's a great, I thank God for the gift of fatherhood in my life. And I wish all the dads out there a happy Father's Day. And don't worry, no, none of us do it perfectly, but we just got to keep doing it. And, uh, and we're called to it. So God bless you all the fathers out there. Have a great weekend, everybody. It's Ed Martin on the Pro-America Report. Be back next week. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego.